Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Recently, many people in the evangelical church have become more aware of the teachings of progressive Christianity, and this is largely due to the overwhelming response to the passing of progressive author Rachel Held Evans. I'll be talking about it with my guest, Ann Kennedy, on today's podcast. My guest today is maybe my favorite writer. She blogs daily at Pathos Evangelical and has a she's written a book called Nailed It, 365 Sarcastic Devotions for Angry or Worn Out People, which I understand is out of print right now uh, because the publisher folded, but Anne's working on getting that uh, to a new publisher to get that available. But I think you, Anne, you told me you can get it on eBay or Amazon for like a million dollars. <laughs> it's very expensive. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm sure it's worth it. Uh, but <laughs> Anne is a, an Anglican from central New York. She's a missionary kid. She's a homeschool mom. She's a, she has six children. And so she is a busy girl. And so I'm so thrilled that, Anne, you've, you've come on the podcast today. You are just delightful. I wish that I could write like you. Oh, my word. Thank you so much. You're making my head blow up, which is bad for my <laughs> spiritual life. <laughs> Thank well, you. <laughs> I, I mean it. I, I just, I point people to your blog all the time because I just think that your insights and just the way you write, the way you communicate your thoughts, I just find myself giggling and, and relating in so many ways to everything that, that you have to say. So um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yes. I really thrilled this worked out for today because I discovered you, I think within the last year, and it was an article you had written about Rachel Hollis and uh, it's called Rachel Hollis and the Geico Jesus, which was such a great article. And you just have this uh, ability to put your finger right on the pulse of what's happening in a particular person's messaging or, you know, what they're communicating. And so I wanted to have you on primarily to talk about a couple of articles you wrote in the last month or so uh, about the death of Rachel Held Evans. And for anyone who isn't aware of what's been going on, Rachel Held Evans was a progressive Christian blogger and author who I would actually call uh, a pioneer in the progressive Christian movement back in the early 2000s. Uh, I think it was about that time she started blogging about some of her doubts and some of her questions about the evangelical paradigm she grew up in. And really, she she mobilized an online community, uh, and others as well. There there were online chats and and classes going on all over the the country. But this this online community was really mobilized by Rachel, and has come to call itself Progressive Christianity. And so, uh, a few weeks ago, she was hospitalized because of a reaction 
that she had to some medication she was given to treat the flu and urinary tract infection. And I was kind of following the story. And right at first, it, her, you know, it was kind of light. It didn't seem like it was that serious. But within a couple of weeks, she had died. And so uh, this sent shockwaves through the evangelical world and the progressive world. There were just tons of responses of outpouring of love and outpouring of grief and expressions of condolences and sympathy and prayers uh, for her family. And I just want to tell a little bit about when, when I heard, I knew that it had become quite serious that she was in a medically induced coma. I had been praying for her and her family. Uh, but when I heard that she had died, I was just utterly shocked and my eyes mm -hmm. filled with tears. And um, I just began grieving and interceding really for her children because I was mm -hmm. just like, Lord, what would I want someone to do if this were me? I'd want them to start praying for my kids. And so that's that's what I did. And I chose not to say anything uh, on social media, but just to pray. And like I said, there was a massive response uh, to, to the point that her, the news of her death even began trending on Twitter. And mm -hmm. uh, many Christian leaders were expressing their sympathy and prayers, and which, which was appropriate and good. Uh, but I, I became increasingly saddened by some of the responses I saw uh, on social media from p people, Christian leaders, who I th thought were theologically sound, who beyond just expressing grief or sympathy or prayers, were calling her uh, like things like a voice of truth or a brave sister in Christ or someone who helped people to hold on to their faith through their doubts. And the reason I was distressed about this is because I've read her books and I have followed her and the gospel she was preaching was a different gospel and the faith that she was helping people hang on to was a different faith. And uh, I even heard podcasts commending her as someone uh, to follow from, you know, otherwise really theologically sound people. And so in the midst of all of this, her books began to sell out on Amazon. And I think if I understand correctly, her latest book even went onto the New York Times bestseller list. So it's really obvious that her teachings are now in the hands of a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily otherwise have read her message or been all that aware of what she was teaching. And it really, I think, almost steered the progressive ship right smack into the evangelical world in a way that a lot of people may not have even realized. Mm -hmm. um, so now everybody's talking about it. And that's why I decided to go ahead and say, I, I think we need to talk about this because we're not necessarily talking about her as a person. We're talking about the teachings that she's put out into the world and have gotten into the hands of probably hundreds of thousands of people who wouldn't have otherwise had them. But Anne, so I read this article you wrote and I I was so moved by it because I, I thought this girl is saying everything I'm thinking, but just <laughs> haven't said. And um, so you wrote an article called Answering a Kind Comment, which was uh, in response to an article you had written a couple of days before called Death and Eastertide, which wasn't particularly only about Rachel, but you had, you, it was in there and you expressed some grief over her death. And, and, and I think at the end you said, you know, I pray that in her last moments that she turned to Christ, you know, I, I pray that, that she did. And so this, I, I, from what I understand, you got quite a bit of backlash on, on that. And you had a lot of comments. So tell us what was the response to that first article? And then we'll, we'll talk about the second one. Well, I like to 
I like to wake up at four o'clock in the morning on Sunday mornings and blog just as my way into the day because I, I love Sunday so much. Mm. And I uh, usually try to deal with our church's lectionary. And but then I, you know, I had, she had died on Saturday, so I was just really that was at the top of my mind, and I was trying to deal with the scripture, and so I. I just wrote about her in the way that I have written about a lot of things, and I did not know that I had been brave at all. <laughs> Somebody wrote me and said, wow, you're you're so brave. And so then I got online I, and saw that I had been brave. I, <laughs> I was the wrong person on the internet, and um, it turned out that I just that one line at the end that I prayed that she really had come to know the real Jesus um, d- really grieved and upset um, the people who have de- had depended on her um, for really their spiritual as a spiritual guide. Mm. And um, yeah, I don't think that I was trying to count up the number of people who said anything just in the right away which I can see now why you don't say anything right away. Yeah. Um, and I think there were only maybe me and two other people. And one of those people had their article pulled um, yes. pretty quick as well. Yeah. So, um, and then, so I got, um, I I had to delete a lot of comments on my blog. And I just, I, just, I, I try not to put up anything personal, like, if somebody wants to go what I've written, then I, I definitely enable that comment. But um, there were a lot of personal comments that I just started deleting. Mm-hmm. Um, but then somebody in the commenting really did um, try to deal with what I had said and was upset that, um, you know, we're all at the same table, she wrote, and we may be sitting on different ends, but, you know, I should know that I'm at the same table and I should make room for, um, for people on, on that spec, on that end of the spectrum. So I felt like I should get back on and say, you know, why it is that we're not at the same table and what, what our deep, um, disagreements are and how they aren't just disagreements among friends who all basically believe the same thing. Um, and right. so that was what, and then that one also did not, uh, it, um, I got a lot of private feedback from people who wrote me and said, I was almost a whisper. I really love what you said yeah, about yeah. Rachel, but I think people are afraid to speak online because it is so contentious. And mm-hmm. I, I now understand that better than I did yeah. um, three weeks ago. Um, it was a, it's been an interesting, uh, eye-opening time for me. I'm great. I'm really grateful though because I, um, I'm not a brave person um, <laughs> at all. I'm actually not brave. And I wanted um, it was it was good for me to speak. Um, I think, even though it wasn't very comfortable. So, and to really think about my tone, because I tend to be, I tend to enjoy sarcasm a lot. And, but I wasn't, I wasn't funny. It's not happy. I'm not happy about the way things, you know, um, about her death at all. And I'm very, very sad about um, the teaching that's coming into the church. And so, um, 
trying to say some of those things more seriously, I think was really good for me. And then to deal with the ramifications of it was, was, yeah. Well, I am no stranger to the progressive backlash. I had two or three articles that made their way around and received a lot of feedback that was per, a lot of personal attacks and, and things like that. So I definitely relate with what you were going through in those couple of days. But I'm really glad that you wrote what you did because it seemed to me that virtually anyone from the evangelical world that tried to write anything just was not helping. It, it just wasn't doing any good and was even doing damage. Either they were offending her followers by taking that opportunity to say all of the ways they disagree with Rachel, or they were trying to be compassionate, but it didn't come off right. And then they ended up commending her as a, you know, a good teacher or something like that. So, but, but your piece pierced through all of that. And I thought your tone was incredibly loving. And so when you had the backlash, you wrote a, a follow-up article called Answering a Kind Comment. And uh, you wrote something that I think is so profound because it's what I was thinking. Uh, and, and I was like, wow, that is exactly what, what I was thinking. And so I'm just going to quote from this and maybe have you expound on this a little more. But you wrote, this is an awkward moment for the evangelical world. It's a moment long coming and one that many Christians who have lived through the quiet earthquakes along the fault lines within mainstream Christianity have dreaded, knowing how it goes, but one that cannot be avoided any longer. I suppose we should even welcome it for its ever-increasing clarity. If the election of Mr. Trump was one kind of evangelical crisis, the death of Rachel Held Evans is another. Both brought into light the deep-rooted troubles that have long been growing. Both are forcing Christians to show to themselves and to each other and to the world their true theological cards. I mean, that you just could not have put it any better. And you really captured um, exactly what, what was going on. And so I want to ask you to expound on that a little bit. How do you see her death as being ev an evangelical crisis? Well, I think she... Um, you know, she left her evangelical church, um, out of frustration. Um, but she did not know that really she had put her finger on, she had brought people along to, um, uh, the kind of, uh, be the, the, the possibility of rejecting, um, biblical truth from, you know, the way that it's articulated every morning in pulpits across America mm. that um, I think that the culture has been itching to let go of that for a while. And she gave people the intellectual foundation to do that. She gave them the language that they needed to let go of it, I think. And um, it, it, it came at the same time, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to get political at all, really, but I think, you know, evangelicals have ha have been in America politically active and um, culturally, uh, culturally, they've they've given to the culture. They've formed and shaped the culture. Mm -hmm. um, but that, you know, I think that was happening while at the same time, good teaching wasn't really forming and shaping the American evangelical identity. So there was a cultural Christianity that people were ready to put down, I think. 
And she gave, and, and of course she wasn't, now she's very well known. Before she died, she was not on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. Um, but she had done all the legwork for, yeah. for that to sort of happen. And so, um, you know, it was interesting to watch the grief people had hung on her as a lifeline to be both in the church, but not in the church. Mm. So you could call yourself a Christian, but you could let go of all of the teachings Mm. of the church. And, um, I called it in whichever piece I wrote this, um, refuge of doubt, Mm. which the main lines, you know, have, have had, they've, they've offered that as a gift for a long time, Mm. but people didn't take them up on it. You know, the emergent movement didn't become mainstream. Um, but she, she was there at at the right time Mm. and people resonated with what she was saying and were ready to go, I think. And that was the, that's the crisis. I think it's crept up on people who didn't, hadn't noticed. Um, you know, I think, evangelicals came under fire with the, you know, the election of this president, um, in a way that I, I question a lot, Mm -hmm. but you know, the question of who's really an evangelical and what do they really believe? And, um, all, all of that is still swirling and she gave people a way out, I think. And, um, and the language that they needed to talk about the shift, the shift that was going on. Well, and so let's let's talk a bit about what she actually was teaching because that's what I'm that's what I'm concerned about. Many Christians may be getting a hold of of one of her books now that they've heard of her, and you know what? Let, let's talk about her book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. This was, I believe, her second book. And I, mm-hmm. I haven't read that one. I read the one that she wrote before that, which was more of her, her story of, of leaving. Uh, well, she hadn't left yet, I don't think, when she wrote her first book, Evolving in Monkey Town. But it was sort of the seeds of um, the tree that would eventually grow and cause her to, to leave. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about a year of biblical womanhood because there was a completely different approach taken to how to read the Bible. And I know you read that book. So tell us about the book and, and how does Rachel, uh, how did she interpret the Bible? How did she, again, you said she gave people language. So what kind of language and tools was she giving them uh, to, to read the Bible with? So, well, the, I, I subsequently learned after reading the book that apparently somebody had done a, a book like A Year of Living Biblically, but it was a person yes. who, who wasn't a Christian at all and was trying to show how absurd the Bible is. Um, right. And apparently that person did make it into, you know, a, you know, got a, a lot, sold a lot of books. And so I think she must have been piggybacking on that idea. So she was yes. going, she took it, um, it she was going to, for a year, there were certain things she had to do every day. Um, but then each month of the year she took on a sort of a project, like a project or a a virtue, um, articulated in the Bible for women. And of course the, the thought, the implication is that she, these weren't going to be commands for men, you know, so she was making some, um, sort of not outright, but trying to uh, make some feminist 
not statements, right. but, you know, points. Um, and then, and show that the Bible doesn't treat women well and uh, that the Bible contradicts itself. It is incoherent. Um, it has a, it has good things in it, but you have to measure those things yourself and you'll be able to see where the absurdity in different biblical commands mm. comes from by trying to live them out. So she, um, she took, she wanted a couple of the things. It was, fu- it was a funny, um, fun book. She's such a great, she's such a great writer. So, you know, you yeah, can see is. how funny it would have been for her to do a lot of these things. So she had, um, she decided she's going to call her husband master because, you know, the, that Sarah called Abraham Lord. So mm. her husband didn't want her to do that. So she settled <laughs> on master. Um, and she had to do all the work in the house cause she couldn't, um, that's what it says in Proverbs 31. You have to do all the work yourself. You can't ask for help. Um, she had to, every time she said a bad, not a bad word, but it, she kept a gossip and uh, complaining ch- ch- uh, jar. Every time she complained about something, she had to put something in the jar. And then at the end of the month, she had to sit on her roof because, um, you know, you're um, a, in Proverbs, of course, all the Bible verses have fled away from me. <laughs> so I think the verse you're talking about is, is it from Proverbs 21 where it says better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife? Is that where she was getting that? Yes. I think, I the think hus- that's what wouldn't the is. husband have to be on the roof for that one? <laughs> yeah. I think that she, you know, she needed to read the text more carefully <laughs> and uh, just send him up there. But, um, yeah, she, she, the, the whole point of it was to show that it was impossible to keep, you know, biblical commands and, um, and, and not worthwhile either. It's not good for women to do that. We're going to hit pause on this conversation for just a moment, but man, as a mom, I'm looking around at the world my kids are growing up in, and I'm seeing the challenges that they're facing, not just from the secular world, but challenges from the Christian world, messages that are going to be coming at them that identify themselves as the gospel or as this is who Jesus was, or this is how we should read the Bible. And there is just so much that they're facing. We have to be proactive in training our kids. And that's why I believe so much in the ministry of Impact 360. After launching in partnership with the Barna Group, a groundbreaking study on the worldview of Generation Z, we know what the next generation is facing. But are you equipped to help lead them through the toughest questions they encounter every single day? Well, Impact 360 Institute created the Gen Z Lab to help you understand the unique challenges facing Gen Z and to equip you to lead the next generation in a post-Christian culture. Go to impact360.org for more information. Let's jump back in with our conversation with Ann Kennedy. You know, it seems like she's ignoring a whole lot of good hermeneutics and 
context and things like that to interpret the Bible that even that proverb proverbs are wise sayings they aren't literal promises or commands there that's how the church understands to read proverbs it's like an apple a day keeps a doctor away nobody thinks that you literally have to eat an apple every single day. And then if you do that, you'll never have to go to the doctor. You know, that would be an example of an English <laughs> proverb. But in the Bible, proverbs right. you know, kind of work the same way. And, mm-hmm. and so the point of that proverb is that don't be quarrelsome. Don't cause strife in your home. Uh, it doesn't mean that the husband literally has to go up on the roof and sit there if the wife disagrees with him or something like that. Right. So, so right. What, was she, you know, what was her approach to the text? Was she just taking everything on a flat literalism kind of thing? Well, it sounds like she's even turning things into commands that weren't really commands. I think she was not able to distinguish between um, the different kinds. Well, she she says later, or maybe it's in another book, that you know there are different kinds of biblical literature and you need to pay attention to the kind of literature that you're reading. So the Psalms should be read differently than you know a historical narrative. But in the year of biblical womanhood, for sure, she didn't um, distinguish between the different kinds of literature. So she definitely did what many people do, which is take the the narrative historical portions and um, not lay them alongside the didactic teaching portions or the law. Mm. So, you know, the law and the the in the New Testament um, are both supposed to shape your reading of the narrative portion. So when Jephthah sacrificed his daughter, um, if indeed he did it in the way that it's implied right. in the text. Yeah, there's some debate over that, isn't there? Right. You're supposed to go back to the law where you see that he wasn't supposed to do that. Yeah. He could have bought her back by the, um, whatever the, the shekel of the sanctuary, you could buy back somebody who had been given vowed to the Lord. And that vow to the Lord wasn't supposed to be a human sacrifice. It says that all over the law. So mm-hmm. you're supposed to read, you can read Jephthah and the text itself in that way comments on itself. You, you don't have to say that God is for human sacrifice um, because you have the whole scripture that balances against itself. Um, And not everything recorded in scripture is a command or prescriptive. Some things are descriptive, not prescriptive. I mean, so many things are descriptive. A lot of the Old Testament is descriptive. The, the, all the polygamy that goes on in the Old Testament is descriptive. You can tell when you go to the New Testament that that was actually not what God was happy with. Um, Mm -hmm. And that he's patient and forgiving, but you're not supposed to, you know, when Lamech takes two wives in the beginning of Genesis, that's a bad thing. And you can tell just reading that text that it's bad. But if you have a hard time telling that, you can still go to the didactic portions and the law. So um, it's not the Christians pick and choose. It's that the scripture interprets itself. That's an that's a very basic, basic hermeneutical, yeah. exegetical practice. And then you go you go from there. And then also you, you trust that God can actually speak, that he's not, um, he, he's not absurd, that he's not capricious. So you do have to know some things about God. You have to have some Christi- Christological 
something, you know, mm-hmm. to go forward. If you don't have Christ, you the text won't make sense and you don't understand who Christ is, the text won't make sense. So yeah. um, she didn't, she did, she either didn't have any of those tools at her fingertips or she deliberately put them aside and refused to use them. Um, and yeah. I, I would imagine it's a little bit of both that she decided not to because she wanted, you know, she had, she had an agenda to some degree. Yeah. Um, but also I think she maybe wasn't given the tools when they would have been really helpful to her, um, as a younger person. One thing I've heard you say is that it almost seems like she's reading the text, uh, for the purpose of mocking Mm -hmm. it. I, I mean, it definitely felt that way. So I, I did keep putting it down because it, she didn't want it to say the things that it says, um, and so she was, it was a sort of artful way of letting, giving everybody a pass on the text. Because yeah. if it, if it, if it doesn't, if it doesn't say what it really says, then you don't have to say, you don't have to obey it. Right. You don't have to submit yourself to it. And I think that was the ultimate goal yeah. in the project, um, to say that you're honoring the text, but actually to undermine and, and mock it, um, was so if you really love the Bible, it's a tough read. <laughs> yeah, and and I found that to be true of her book Inspired. Uh, it's called Inspired Slaying Giants, Walking on Water and Loving the Bible Again. I actually reviewed this on my blog, and I just want to say a little something here for anyone listening about the progressive Christian approach to the Bible. Kind of what we've been talking about, what we're seeing emerge in this theme of a year of biblical womanhood and and taking some command, you know, turning things that aren't commands into commands and taking everything in a, almost a flat and wooden uh, literal way, uh, which which is ironically what we often get accused of. You know, like the yes. progressives will accuse us of reading it, you know, lit with with strict literalism. And so I've always said, when I say I read the Bible literally, I I mean that I'm reading it literally as it's meant to be read. I give it the same mm-hmm. consideration I give any book I read. And so the t- the typical progressive way of approaching the Bible is kind of in line with, with what we're talking about here and what we'll get into when we talk about her book, Inspired. One of the scholars that she called her mentor is Pete Enns. And Pete Enns is from Harvard. I mean, he's got his PhD from Harvard. He knows the Bible. Uh, but in his book about the Bible, he says, he sums it up like this. What I, what I appreciated about his book is you read the entire book and then he says, okay, here's my whole book in like three paragraphs. And then he sums the whole thing up, which was really helpful. But he says, the Bible is an ancient book and we shouldn't be surprised to see it act like one. So seeing God portrayed as a violent tribal warrior is not how God is, but how he was understood to be by the ancient Israelites communing with God in their place and time. So essentially what he's saying here is that when you read the Old Testament and you read, uh, for example, Moses uh giving the law even, or certain parts of the law, or God commanding the Israelites to go in to the Canaanites and and wipe them out. From the progressive view, they would say, well, that wasn't really God. Those those people weren't really speaking for God. They, They got that wrong. And so basically when according to the progressive view, when we're reading the Old Testament, what we're seeing is we're seeing 
the evolution of our ancestors' best understandings of God. In fact, that's how Brian McLaren puts it. He says, human beings can't do better than their very best at any given moment to communicate about God as they understand God. And then he says, scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of their best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. So we aren't supposed to take that, that God really said X, Y, Z, but that the person who thought they were speaking for God said that. And so that um, I, I found to be consistent across the board with progressives, that this is the way that they approach, especially the Old Testament, that we're just, it, it's like a photograph. We're looking at a picture of what people believed about God, but we're not supposed to take those as commands. You know, the parts that are commands, we're not supposed to take those as commands. And so you mentioned with uh, Rachel Held Evans's book, she's saying we can figure those things out for ourselves, which we can figure out which parts of the Bible you know, really happened or which parts are authoritative, but that's kind of up to us. And she said something like that in her book, Inspired. And um, here's what she said. I'm going to read a quote from it. She said, this is the deleterious snare of fundamentalism. It claims that the heart is so corrupted by sin, it simply cannot be trusted to sort right from wrong, good from evil, divine from depraved. Instinct, intuition, conscience, critical thinking, these impulses must be set aside whenever they appear to contradict the biblical text because the good Christian never questions the clear teachings of scripture. The good Christian listens to God, not her gut. And then this is kind of the the one-two punch here. She says, when you can't trust your own God-given conscience to tell you what's right, your own God-given mind to tell you what's true, you lose the capacity to engage the world in any meaningful, authentic way. So she's saying, when you're reading the Bible, if something doesn't seem right, go with your gut. It's probably not right. You know, God has given you this mind to use. and, And when your mind disagrees with the Bible, go with your mind, really. I mean, that's essentially what she's saying there. And, and so it seems like that's kind of how she was approaching the the text when in year of biblical womanhood would you say that's that's kind of accurate oh yeah i think she definitely had that in view although she didn't say it quite as clearly as that um she she was uh, yeah i mean the person is supposed to measure the text rather than the text measuring the person um and she's she's very clear about that um throughout and uh, which is uh, tra- so tragic because, yeah. you know, first it implies that God is an incomprehensible being that we create and then that we can't understand him. Yeah. Um, so it's a very weak, very weak picture of God. And the text itself is very weak. And I think it's it's confusing to me why she would be so compelled by it. Why would she keep reading yeah. if... Um, if she didn't like the God who was there. Um, but yeah, I mean, she could, she, she definitely had a human centered, um, uh, hermeneutic. Um, and she was, she measured, she measured for herself, um, what every text, you know, whether it was, so she, some texts were very good and this is very, very progressive. This is the way that it goes. The, the, the hermeneutic that you then use is, your definition of love. Yes. So you can accept certain things from the Bible, those that appear loving to you based on your definition of love. Mm. Um, and that way you can cut out all of the old Testament, except for some of the Psalms Mm -hmm. and part of the book of Lamentations. And then 
Um, You have a little bit from the Gospels, although not very much because Jesus talked about hell a lot. And then you don't have to have Paul and, um, you know, the book of Revelation doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So it's very truncated. It is very truncated. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I was in a progressive church, uh, which is kind of part of my story, uh, I remember the pastor saying, Revelation is just, like he was just throwing it out. Like I don't even, you know have a category for this book. I'm not even going to like go there. I don't even care about it really. It's just not even on my radar. Uh, yeah. So, so that's true. And what's interesting too about inspired is that from the beginning, she gives us her, her method of interpreting the Bible. She, in the introduction, she identifies three theological approaches that now inform the way she reads the Bible. And that's historical criticism, which if anyone's unfamiliar, historical criticism um, can can kind of be traced all the way back to the 16th century, but really started gaining ground in the 18th century. And so basically historical critics, they don't believe the Bible is divinely inspired. They uh, typically take all the supernatural stuff away and it, and it kind of becomes a more naturalistic approach, kind of like what you heard Pete Enns saying mm-hmm. in the quote I gave before, that mm-hmm. it's a very naturalistic way of approaching the Bible. And then she mentions liberation theology, which has really only been around since about the 50s or 60s. And so it's it's a way of interpreting the Bible through a lens, just through the lens of oppression and liberation. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then the third way she said she interprets the Bible is through the lens of feminist Bible interpretation. So she's from the get-go assuming that really modern feminism is, is right and correct, and we should interpret the Bible through that lens, which recently uh, Union Seminary, which is a really progressive liberal seminary, they posted some of their tenants on Twitter and they said, we interpret the Bible through the lens of critical theory, which is where some of this feminist interpretations and the liberation theology is is coming from. And so I thought that was really interesting that rather than saying, look, I want to look at what this text meant to the person who wrote it and to the first audience it was written to, what was God saying through it? She's saying, no, I'm going to filter it through these lenses that I think are correct and make it fit into into that. What's so tragic about that is that the, you know, the historical critical method is not, you know, now that it's finally reaching evangelicalism, it's really been shown in to be not useful. Um, It's it's historically bad. Um, And even, you know, scholars that embraced it have had to walk back um, a lot of those methods because they've been shown to be not true, not helpful. Um, and then I do, I, I think the, the, the liberation theology and feminist theology is kind of out, it's going out. So it's, it's too bad that, you know, it's now coming into yeah. um, evangelicalism because it, it, it went through the, uh, main lines and destroyed them. Yes. And so the, it's not a, those are not helpful ways of reading the Bible. They don't, um, bring people along in faith and eventually you empty out your whole church buildings by embracing those methods. So it's too bad. Um, you know, like just when they're really demode, that's when, uh, the church evangelical churches, you know, are willing to try them out. Yes. Um, And that's so, that is such an important point because, 
that's the thing that I've seen happen over and over and over again is uh, another, you know, an evangelical person who was maybe raised in the church and saw some stupid stuff or even went through some, maybe some legitimate abuse or something that caused them to start questioning the paradigm they grew up in. Uh, They'll get their hands on a book by Pete Enns or Rachel Held Evans and go, oh my gosh, this is, you know, like it's brand new to them. And they don't realize that really they're just giving all of the ideas, like you said, that destroyed the mainline churches, that caused those churches to decline. And, uh, and, and but for, for the person who's just discovered it, it's brand new to them and they think it's revolutionary and they think it's, you know, they think it's, it's right with the times of now, but it's, it's really not. It's really kind of old uh, liberal theology that's recycled with new language. It is. It's it's tragic, um, and it's not gonna it's not gonna end well. Um, you know, I, I I just grieve so much. I in the days after her death, I kept thinking. Um, it's interesting how many people attach themselves to her personally. You know, I think when a when a Christian dies. The whole church should grieve, and then the sort of glory of God emerges out of that, um, you know, you can see God's glory in uh, a true Christian's death. Um, And it's grievous, but it's it's strangely upbuilding for the church. Um, And that just, you can see in the spiraling out that the sort of the opposite of that has happened. Um, The church is sort of unmoored or portions of the church. Well, I think we're getting to see who, what the church really is supposed to be as a result of this, but that's not a lesson. (laughs) That's not a a comforting lesson, I think. Yeah. So as we kind of close out here, um, I just want to ask you for some final thoughts. Anything else you want to say about um, just her teachings or maybe how she understood the gospel or what your basic takeaway from all of this is. I, I think her, I mean, I, I think her gospel is part of the the tragedy that her gospel is the sort of, um, you know, the exchange. And I've seen this in a lot of people, people who are writing now you exchange moral therapeutic deism for a progressive therapeutic deism. Mm. So you have, you are still left with the human person trying to do good and you never, you never encounter the work of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the power of Jesus, um, the power of the word and the scripture. Um, you, you are always left with your own stuff and your own self at the end of the day and your own effort. And I think she, she, that was her gospel, same as other people's. Um, and I, you know, I think it's a great, great sorrow, a great tragedy. Um, but, um, I, 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 the other thing that I've really prayed, I have prayed so much is that people who attach themselves to her work and her life and who, who, who profess to love the questions and who who have embraced doubt as a way of life would actually intellectually honestly pursue the truth or that God would move some of them to truly seek and that Christians would really be able to um, articulate answers to 
all these questions that are real questions. Mm. They're meant to be asked. You're not supposed to just accept it. You're supposed to wrestle um, with your faith. And um, she did. She kept, she returned to Jacob wrestling with the angel. I thought it was really helpful, except that she, she refuses the answer. So um, I, I, that that's you're supposed to wrestle you're supposed to cling on and not let go and you're and it, of course yes. it's difficult and painful and you don't get the answers that you wanted but you you don't let go um and progressive yeah. this 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 way of reading the bible is a way of letting go of it and and not um not clinging on actually and what you're and you're left with in the end is yourself and not jesus and not life. Well, that's that's well put. And I want to close with a another quote from your post uh, that I thought was so beautifully put about why it's important to have good doctrine, why it's important to hold the line on biblical truth. And here's, here's what uh, you said in your post, and I want to end with this. You said, there is a reason the human heart longs for the warm shelter of the church, because inside the heating fire of God's atoning grace binds sinners together in one holy fellowship, but the sin has to stay outside, and we can't change the definition of sin to make it easier. And so we are not sitting at opposite sides of one long table. We are not eating of one bread and drinking of one cup. We are talking about two different faiths, two different kinds of love, two different lords. Christians who love sinners as Christ has commanded them to do must speak the truth about who that God is and who we are as his creatures. Moreover, we ought to pray for those who are walking away from his warm and gracious mercy, uh, will turn around, will repent, will walk back toward him, and that when they come to the haven of the church, the church does not throw away that mercy by saying that it is something other than what it really is. And that is just beautiful. And thanks so much for, for being on the podcast today. Thank you. I re- This was so fun. I'm, I'm delighted that I could eat with you for this hour. Thank Me you. Too. Thank you. enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to elisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.